A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here on Friday for an interview a dish. And you guys, I got to sit down with my old friend Wyatt Sinek. It's been a long time since Wyatt and I have seen each other, actually. We met, boy, many years ago, and actually kind of remind Wyatt of this story. He's He was the first kind of uh, famous entertainment person that I became pals with way back when, when he uh, shared Stuff You Should Know with John Hodgman. And said, you might like this, John, when they were working on The Daily Show together. And John got in touch with Josh and I and said, let's all go to lunch. Next time you come to New York, we went to New York. And Josh and I and uh, John and Wyatt all had lunch together. And it was a very big deal to us. And I told Wyatt about this and what that meant to me. Um, kind of that that we felt like we had arrived a little bit. And... Um, I don't think Wyatt had any idea that that meant something to us. So it was kind of funny to talk about. But uh, we've seen each other off and on over the years uh, and done some pretty fun stuff together. Uh, but it's been a minute. So it was great to get Wyatt in here. He was uh, originally, he was one of the first guests I had on my list way back when. Um, but it was always hard to kind of track him down. But here we are three years in. I finally get Wyatt in here. We had a really long, great conversation about uh, his awesome underseen show on HBO problem areas and what he was trying to do there. And we really got into it with problem areas. We talked a little bit about King of the Hill when he was a writer for that uh, TV show, which was kind of cool because I somehow had never talked to Wyatt about King of the Hill. And we eventually got around to blazing saddles after an hour plus of great conversation. So uh, blazing saddles was his pick. One of the great comedies of all time. Uh, one of the great subversive, uh, comedies of all time as well. And we talk a lot about that and the role that it played back then and can still play today 
as far as uh, subverting racism uh, in some very fun and interesting ways. So it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And here we go with the wonderful and charming and funny Wyatt Cenac on Blazing Saddles. How you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm still getting used to this whole the world now exists on laptops. I said things are about to be fine right as you're adjusting. Hopefully. I uh yeah, I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine which Oh yeah. Yeah, has been an interesting experience because the day I got it was the day that they recalled 15 million doses because of the like batch problem. Uh-huh. And then um and then yesterday obviously there was the news of six people uh getting blood clots. Uh so I really feel like in terms of vaccines I could have chosen, I'm really getting <laughs> all the all the things that would have me worried. Right. Uh, I'm they're getting front loaded. Right. So yeah. Let's get did you have a choice actually? I didn't. It was a strange thing. In New York, there like there was just one day where the governor decided on like a Tuesday that he was going to open up the vaccine availability to anyone like 30 and older. Mm-hmm. And the week before it had been 50 and older. And as you know, I'm, uh, I'm 30 and a half. And right. <laughs> uh, I, so as soon as he made that announcement, I just happened to see it. And I immediately called my local pharmacy and they were like, uh, sure, come in on Friday. And uh, so I was just like, I it, it wasn't even a thing of, oh, let me go and check whatever the website. I was just like, no, just call the pharmacy and right, text get it to everybody I knew, like as though there was some sort of gold rush. And right. just like, <laughs> call your pharmacy. And so, uh, yeah, so that was that was how I wound up doing it. But I thought I was going to get Moderna. That's what I got. Yeah. And so I was a little disappointed when I got there because everyone I know has gotten Moderna. And it seemed like even when I would go on social media and I'd see on Instagram, everyone would be posting photos of their vaccine cards right. like Moderna. And so <laughs> Moderna seemed like, you know, it was the the jet cool kids. blue of... <laughs> right. <laughs> Of uh, of vaccines that like everyone's yeah. flying jet blue to Cancun. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson started to feel more and more like Spirit Airlines. Right. I think most of my friends got Pfizer so far, and I I'm kind of an outlier. Oh wow, that's interesting. So maybe it's just kind of where you are and what they've got in your area. I was going to say, yeah, is that is are those regional friends or is that across the country? Uh, I think most of my friends here in Atlanta got Pfizer, I feel like. And then uh, my wife Emily and I got Moderna and I don't know anyone here that got Johnson and Johnson, so. Wow. Who knows? Yeah. No, it's a it's a very it's an interesting it's an interesting thing and it's I hope that it makes people more curious about like medicine and yeah, like science in general. But like, I, I just know for myself, 
I think when I was starting to feel a little bit of that, like sort of fear of missing out that I somehow got the, the, you know, uh, grocery store brand vaccine. Right. <laughs> I, I started looking up the different things on the CDC as far as like, not even the efficacy of the vaccine, but just who it got tested on, how many people it got right. tested on. And in some, in some ways I started to feel a little more comfortable with the Johnson Johnson vaccine because even the demographics of people that they had done trials on was more diverse than oh, it was than it was for Moderna and Pfizer. And yeah. that I, when we were making problem areas, we'd done a thing about just the way medicines get tested and how they're more often than not tested primarily tested and engineered primarily for white men first and right. then everyone else. And so that's why you tend to see women continually have worse side effects for any medicine because they're very rarely tested with them in mind. Yeah. I saw that episode. Well, thank you. Let's, uh, yeah, I can't, was... re I can't re repeat any stats to you because it's been a long time, but yeah, it was great, man. I mean, I, that was on my list to talk about anyway. And, uh, it was so good, man. It was really great. I mean, I love the, uh, I love the way it was styled and just the, the intro and the set and how you did the little animated pieces. And it just felt like, like people from sort of our generation, um, it, it felt, it kind of was like what I always hoped a stuff you should know show was going to be like a sort of electric company for <laughs> adults. And we, you know, we missed the mark, but, um, you nailed it, man. I thought it was good how you, Hey, you jumped around between a lot of issues, uh, but in that season one, you know, how you had the police thread and you handled that in a way that I just thought was so thoughtful and um, reasonable. And it was the kind of thing I wanted people who needed to see that to see it, because I was like, here's a guy that's like, I think could really get through with the way you were approaching it. And um, you know how it is, though. I mean, unfortunately, the people that are watching you probably aren't the people that need to be seeing that in the first place. <laughs> True, but you you never know. I mean, I feel like there's a there's the interesting thing, and I feel I I don't think that our show did it the best, but I feel like we maybe get credit for at least starting a conversation on it, or bringing not starting a conversation, but bringing a conversation to television, and that was the episode around police abolition. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting now as people have that conversation more and more, I, yeah. I think what I appreciated about the show was the idea that, okay, yeah, we can talk about these things and maybe, maybe most of the audience will be the echo chamber, but yeah. even in the echo chamber, they may not be aware of something like police abolition or right. aware of something like a civilian complaint review board. And if they're not, perhaps if they have that to add to their vocabulary, they can start saying, Hey, why doesn't our city have this thing? Why don't we have social workers that go out with police officers right. and partner and let's redefine safety as something like that, that can go 
hand in hand um, with uh, actual like care and compassion uh, approaches. And so I, so in that way, and then, yeah, the hope outside the echo chamber was that you did have those people who were like, yeah, I'll be honest. I don't believe in anything you stand for, but you've made yeah. me think. And uh, when we made the show, our, I, uh, the building that we made the show in, we were on the fifth floor uh-huh. and on the fourth floor was actually the, uh, police union the nypd's uh like the line officers union and so there was very little interaction but like the head of the new york police union is really like a very fiery troll uh who just like (laughs) goes on fox news all the time and is just really a shitster um and i always was like oh am i gonna run into this guy on the elevator and Never did, but uh, one of the security guys who worked the building was like a longtime police officer, and he would sometimes stop me in the elevator uh, where it was just like the two of us, and he'd Uh be like, I watched your show, and a part of me was just like, are you about to stop this elevator and (laughs) and hit me? Or Or, or thank me. (laughs) Yeah, like hit me about the knees with a telephone book, and he'd be like, yeah, you know, I didn't agree with all of it, but I I like what you're doing. And yeah, like you're making some good points there. And it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, you're not the person that I would have expected to engage in this conversation. And I feel like you, you, you know, but I feel like I'm, I'm maybe cracking through the, the armor there a little bit. And totally, man. I mean, you could tell that you just took such great care and it was so thoughtful in how you tried to, source conversations with different kinds of people. And it wasn't just the familiar talking points and let's hear only from kind of one side, like you were, you were bringing in people and having like real conversations around it. And I think, I mean, that's the only way to do it if you're going to make any headway. So I I just loved it. And then beyond that, the policing stuff, just, you know, it, it was just, uh, you had stuff about, you know, mosquitoes and space travel (laughs) and, and uh, dogs eating chicken bones. And it was just, uh, I just love the variety of it all. I thought it was great. How, how was it working with HBO? Was that cool? Um, it was interesting. It was a, it was, I'm appreciative, but at the same time, when I look at the experience, we had to make so much with so little and yeah. not just from like a budgetary standpoint, but the moment that production officially started we, I think, started in September of, I guess that would have been 2017. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you are premiering April of 2018 and go. And from, from starting up from scratch? Yeah, from hiring. Wow. We had started slowly hiring some people in August, but we didn't have a full staff until sometime in September. Yeah. And then in that first season for every for every policing story that we shot we were only budgeted and calendared for 2 days for wow. each shoot. And so when I think about the stories we were able to kind of like get in two totally. two days of shooting, it's truly a testament to 
the hard work of everybody at the show. Yeah. And also it's also this unfortunate thing that like, Oh, we shouldn't have been locked into a, like you have to premiere April at this time. Right. Really should have given us the time as though we were making a documentary where it's like, right. Okay. Take the time and take the resources to really get it right or get it to where you want it to be. Because I think there are certain things when I think about the show and especially that first season, there, there were certain story things that I wanted to do, but because of the schedule, we never had the ability to do. Yeah. And I think about some of those things now where I'm like, Oh, part of the conversations that we're having right now, I wonder if those things would have added to some of those conversations in a, yeah. in a better way. Like when I think again about like the abolition stuff and just the idea of like defunding the police, I remember I'd had this hope and thought that by the end of the season, I'd wanted to do this thing that by the end of the season, we would actually start our own police force uh -huh. because I'd started to learn about how certain communities actually created their own police forces. Oh, wow. And in New York, for example, uh, where we had our offices, there was a police force that was created specifically to, to serve that population, which was, which is a population that's predominantly Asian and Asian American. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to kind of like through the NYPD, there's a way in which you can sort of create your own police force and you get your own police cars and your own officers. And wow. so I, and there are uh, also in Brooklyn, uh, I believe in the Hasidic community, they have a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of, I, I became fascinated with that, but thinking about it with this idea of like, well, could we do that? And then as a police force, could we then also get government funding to get one of those uh, military MRAP vehicles? Uh -huh. <laughs> because they're the, uh, I believe, uh, the I, I can't remember the exact name of it, but there's an office in DC that's whole focus is like the office of like budgetary waste management. Or, it's like the uh -huh. OMB or the Office of Budgetary Management or something like that. They have a podcast. Um, do they really? They do. <laughs> but they did a whole thing about how they basically set themselves up to get uh, military grade equipment. Mm -hmm. from these like horrible kind of like tax incentives and things that are created where, you know, when you ask why police departments get like SWAT, get these huge like military vehicles, it's because they are incentivized through these like deals that the federal government has given them. And so this wow. office of, uh, of budget management had done that to expose it. And they were like, 
I think they got like a rocket launcher and <laughs> holy shit. They, and so I was like, Oh, could we do that? Could we right. start? Our, <laughs> but in my head, I was like, could we start our own police force? Could we get uh-huh. an MRAP? And then in redefining what policing could be, the idea was, could we paint the MRAP into something that seemed not aggressive? Yeah. And then it, rather than fill it with police officers, fill it with social workers. Yeah. Fill it oh, with man. and, and basically idea. have it as like a mobile kind uh-huh. of like emergency response unit. And so if you do need the person who has to physically subdue somebody, that person is in the car too. But there are just as many social workers, mental health experts, uh, right. you know, there are all these like even like EMTs <laughs> and it's and so it's basically like a Voltron of yeah. like res, of response that you could then be like, this is what our police force looks like. That's amazing. It's this big vehicle, but in it, it's like, okay, we got the call. Like there's someone in mental distress and you can be like, okay, uh, you know, Rick, you're going to sit this one out. We don't need cops on this one. We're going to go, we're going to go with Dr. Johansson here. Right. Who's going to just kind of talk, do some talk therapy. Do you know Dave Hill? The comedian? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Have you seen the stuff he's painting? No. Where he's taking like, Dave's, you know, really talented at everything, but he's, he's now taking like axes and stuff. And he paints these really beautiful flowers and sunflowers and stuff all over him in these cool patterns. And it's really gorgeous. And the stormtrooper helmets and axes and hatchets and stuff. Oh, but like wow. you, you could get Dave to paint it <laughs> up with all these beautiful sunflowers. Yeah. And just then send the team in. Exactly. And then people are like, oh, what's that weird? What's that weird pretty tank doing? <laughs> and it's like, no, it's just here to help. It's, you know. Even instead of having cops do those weird like viral videos where they right. go shoot baskets with kids or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> in the truck, you can also just have like some, you know, some stuffy, some stuffy looking professor type that uh-huh. their whole thing is like they come out and they have a top hat or they, you know, have a hoop skirt on and then they go and they, you know, do some sweet, uh, sweet moves on a basketball court and they go viral and they're a city employee and they go viral that way. Oh man, that would have been great. Yeah. Uh, I could see HBO getting down with that too. I'm surprised they didn't. Well, I think again, it was the, it was the amount of time. Right. I think we, I wished, I wished when we had the show that we had, that the network maybe had a little more faith in us as opposed to, I think they, I feel as though they didn't necessarily trust what this show was and what it was going to be and perhaps also didn't trust me. And so I think they were very skittish about everything. And and I think in their head, they were like, well, we'll lock you to the schedule and thereby like you have to deliver something, which the irony being there are plenty of people on that network uh, who signed really lucrative deals to make things sure. that have never been made. And right. it's like, oh, wait a minute, you paid that person tens of millions of dollars to deliver something for you and they never did it. Right. And you're not paying me anywhere near that. 
but I'm the I'm the one who is seen as the risk. Yeah, that's a shame too, because usually, and I've even heard this with HBO that like if it's a smaller show that they won't give much money to, they'll at least leave you alone. Yeah, you know, and and they do that. I I think it depends on you know, the executives that you have and the relationship you have with those executives. And so I think in that regard, um, yeah, I know people who have great relationships with executives and I know on the West coast, they are really good about, uh, just kind of like trusting the creative voices and giving them the space. And ultimately, you know, you do have to earn those things. And I think it, at the, at the point at which I had gotten to HBO, I had hoped and would have liked to have believed that I had earned yeah. that at that point, that I'd made enough stuff that had done well or had, mm-hmm. you know, had a, had a good critical reception that I'd at least earned the, the respect to kind of like, okay, give, let's give space to actually make the best thing as opposed to trying to, uh, you know, kind of put as many constraints on this thing, uh, and see, see if they can see if they can spin it into something. Was season two any different? Season two, the main difference in season two was when it came to shooting all of the education stories we had four days instead of two days. Hey, so we were able your, uh... <laughs> we were able to get a couple more days. The challenge, the the schedule was still the same. We were still kind of locked into a schedule. The challenge with both policing and with education as subjects, and this again is something where I feel like, unfortunately, we were kind of between a rock and a hard place the it's one thing to say okay i want to i want to go talk to people about police brutality mm-hmm. there are people who will talk to you about that if you want to talk to people about like the failings of a school there are parents and students who will talk to you about that where you come up against roadblocks is with police departments and yeah. schools and they are incredibly skittish they totally. are uh, they are incredibly uh, guarded, and to crack through that takes a lot of time, and yeah. it really impacted our abilities to tell stories because we would have situations in both seasons we had it where we had situations where there were police departments and school districts that had agreed to sit down with us. Mm-hmm. We booked flights and then they said, no, never mind. Wow. <laughs> and That's disappointing. It is. And it's unfortunate because the stories we wanted to tell were stories where it was like, these are about these kind of partnerships and relationships that exist with communities and these institutions. And right. to not be a part of that conversation and to be that guarded about it to us, like I get, okay, not everybody wants to be on camera, but to be that guarded 
kind of places puts a window to what these communities must feel. Yeah. That like, okay, even the things that you're supposed to technically be proud of in terms of the work you're doing. Right. Cause it wasn't like we were going to the police department or the school that was like, Oh, this is the school that, you know, just beats children or this is the, yeah. You weren't Michael Moore walking in there. No. And with all these places, they were places where it was a thing of like, okay, this school district has, you know, a program that's actually speaking to something that is supposed to be, you know, whether it's like an alternative to criminalizing students, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about the work you're doing. And it's like, oh no, we don't want to talk about it. Or police departments, you know, I remember there was one police department in Cincinnati that the work that they were doing was one that was much more of a public private partnership where Mm -hmm. the community worked with the police to create programs and things to help kind of like curb crime in their neighborhoods. And so, uh, you know, one of the things was, uh, the community was saying like, oh, there's this park that there's often a lot of crime in this park mm-hmm. and the park is overrun with trash and there's no lawn maintenance and there are all these trees. Maybe we could clean up the park. And that's what they did. <laughs> and it was right. like, oh, okay, yeah. And then they saw crime statistics went down and it was like, yeah, oh, right, okay. And that and when and with that story we got to cincinnati and the cincinnati police department we landed and they decided once we got there they didn't want to talk to us and it was like why like this is what you like this is what you're doing and it may not be perfect but it seems like if you're as proud of it as you claim to be right then talk about it and the irony being that i think uh Vice had done a piece earlier that year with that same police department where the police department was showing off more of the kind of like more of the aggressive things they were doing. Yeah. And it was weird where it's like, oh, you'll show off the things that you think make you look like, you know, a tough guy. Yeah. But those are the things that keep getting you into trouble. Yeah, it's so weird. It's such a closed, uh, I mean, skittish is the tamest way to say it. it it's um, trying to break through to, I mean, it's it's just so, such a closed system. Uh, I imagine, I mean, what'd you do once you got there, once you were there and you were denied? Just try and find a story? So we talked to everybody else involved, although the cops did tell some people not to talk to us. So it wasn't even that they had they were like you know we're not going to talk they tried to convince community members not to talk to us and a couple community members didn't talk to us as a result and i think uninvited us from an event they were doing so it was it was tough and and so but we talked to everyone else that we could with the story and then there was a a community meeting that the police were going to be at and so we went to that and figured we'd film that and if possible, try to 
just see if we could get the chief of police to chat with us on camera yeah. for a moment. But it all also became part of the story where it was just right. like, what does it say when yeah, yeah. these cops are this like afraid to talk about what it is that they do? Like that's a problem. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it, it, I think added to the story in this kind of, uh, in a roundabout way, but it, it, I feel like it would have been nice to have gotten the, the entire story. And I think with that one, ultimately we also had to go back and get one interview with a police officer, a retired police officer. I think the best we were able to do as far as getting any cop on the record was to get a retired cop. So, um, yeah, uh, who could talk about Cincinnati and the history of policing in Cincinnati. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's really, it's a very unfortunate thing. And I think you see it now, even with like the way that policing and that kind of like that blue line exists where, mm -hmm. you know, you see even the events of the last week, uh, yeah. Oftentimes retired police officers have less of a problem yeah. saying like, Hey, that's not good police work. And yet the police officers who are still working and are still walking a beat are just like closed mouths. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, it's never going to change if you all just immediately rather than call out bullshit you all just immediately kind of like huddle together and rally behind the person who clearly did something wrong yeah and it's it's i mean that's one of the most frustrating parts because if you want your image changed like you could actively be a part of that without selling out or whatever like you could you know like yeah no. they don't want their image to be that but they won't do anything to let their image not be that Right. And it's, and that's, what's so strange is that weird, that weird thing. And I think, again, when I think about what I had been thinking about with problem areas, as far as like that, the sort of dream idea of like, well, what if we made our own police force? Right. Within that, some of that too was looking at, uh, there was an episode that we didn't do that I, I'd, I'd been fascinated with this story about police uniforms and just how, you know, that idea that the clothes make a person and mm -hmm. that there, in the past, there were police departments that decided to quote unquote, soften their images. And they started switching their uniforms to things that were a little more professional looking where there was one, I believe in California, uh, where the police officers, wore like blazers okay and instead of having like a hard badge the badge was like a patch on right. their on their jackets <laughs> and it's little things the story and it's all anecdotal but the story goes that when they did that there became a little bit of a shift of the types of people who were uh signing up for the police academy mm -hmm. and it was people who like had more of a kind of like social work background or right. was people who were coming out of like the seminary. And, wow. and so, and it's all anecdotal, but they, 
it may have been who the department was trying to recruit. It may have been yeah. like, oh yeah, I like a, I like an outfit with a snappy blazer. Um, sure. <laughs> but then apparently they, they dropped it after a while. It seemed to be successful for a while. And then I guess they dropped it after a while because uh, there were complaints of police brutality, but it was different. It was brutality against police officers Oh, because wow. people didn't feel threatened by <laughs> these guys who had like, I think they even had like pocket protectors, like it, like they had pens and shit. So I think it They're was like, bullied. Oh, they, they became too, uh, the, the image got like, Oh no, that's a teacher. And I, I can go uh-huh. fight a teacher. I have no idea if that's, if, if, if those, what the correlation as far as, those instances of police brutality as you know, it's also without knowing what those stories are, it's yeah. hard to say that, you know, is police brutality just like, I tried to arrest somebody and they kicked me like, right. That's, uh, <laughs> kick me in the shin. <laughs> yeah. Um, versus like, no, we were walking the beat and then these kids started throwing eggs at us. Uh, so yeah, but it, but it, I, I, I found myself thinking about, you know, as we have a conversation around policing in this country, mm-hmm. and it's the same conversation, I think, around something like education and also around something like healthcare and yeah. housing, we have only loosely defined what we want these things to be. Mm-hmm. And because they're loosely defined, it then winds up being the responsibility of the person who is in charge of that institution to define it. Right. And they get to define what it is. And so that's why it then becomes that much easier for a police department to prioritize militarization over actual like crime prevention, which we know isn't something that happens through policing. It's something that happens through putting those resources elsewhere into social services that can actually help people to get a better education, to get quality education, to get quality housing, to get quality employment. And so it's like, Oh yeah. If you're getting to define it, you're never going to define something in a way that says, Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm getting too much money and that money should go elsewhere. And so I think with all these things, you know, you see it, I I think even in this moment where we talk about healthcare, we've allowed private healthcare companies to define what healthcare should be. Right. And there is no, with all these things, we have these umbrella terms, but we don't have umbrella definitions that are, okay, you know what? Policing should only be this. Right. And it should, and this is, this is the minimum of what policing should be. And this is the maximum of what policing should be. And in the same way, we have no minimum for what we expect education to be. We Mm -hmm. like, or a maximum, but definitely we have, we've, we have no definition of like, this is, this is what the base level of educational access every kid should have right there's no definition and so that's why it's so easy to find a school 
where textbooks are decades out of date and yeah. they have no resources to hire or retain teachers and schools are crumbling because we haven't said like, oh, you know what? Every school should have structural updates every five years. And yeah. that should just be a, a locked in thing. And every three years, their textbooks need to be updated. They need right. to be replaced. Like and, it's just automatic. Yeah. And instead, what we do is we say, well, the students need to learn X, Y, Z. Like they need to prove this level of reading comprehension mm-hmm. by this age, or we cut funding to this school. Right. But we don't say, well, wait a minute. If that school doesn't have enough teachers and, you know, they should get more funding. Yeah. And when we talk about like things like classroom size, again, we know like classrooms should probably be 12 kids maximum. And yet yeah. we say like, well, this school in this neighborhood, they don't have the funding. So 30 kids are going to be in a classroom. Tough shit. And it's yeah. just like, no, there should be a minimum. And the moment your classroom goes over, whatever, 15 kids, it's like, okay, that school needs more money. And that's what we got to do. And we just got to pump more money into that school so that they can make a new class for that group of kids. And right. But we don't define these things. And we just say like, oh yeah, a bad school is like, you know, it's a bad school. And, but we don't say like, right. But what is the floor for what every school should be? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and parents, uh, just know what the bad schools are so you can do everything you can to try and get your kid to a different one. Right. Yeah. I mean, in New it York, nothing. yeah. In New York, you see that here cause there's all of what they call like the high performing schools mm-hmm. and there's, you know, all of this competition to get into these schools. And on the one hand, I feel like the city looks at that and they wear it as a badge of honor of like, look at how many parents compete Right. To get their kids into these schools <laughs> and how many kids are competing every year to get into these schools when to me, what it says is like, what does it say about the rest of your schools Right, that people are so desperate to get out of those yeah, yeah. to just get into these handful of schools? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was a public school kid. My parents were both public school teachers. So this is like a situation I've been intimately involved with my whole life just through their eyes. Yeah. Uh, interesting stuff. And you know what, everyone listening, the uh, problem areas is still on HBO max. So if you didn't get a chance to see it, please do. It's very funny. I mean, we're talking about all this like sort of heavy stuff, but it's also a very funny show. Yeah. I feel uh, I like, like we're having a fun conversation about it. <laughs> no, of course it is. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. And my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know if you want to talk about it or not. We don't have to, but I did see what happened with Jon Stewart coming out with his show, The Problem. Sure. And uh, (laughs) before I even saw what what you uh, tweeted out, I was just like, like seriously yeah like that that's the title of it <laughs> yeah well in the title and at least by the description the description is that uh it seems like it's a show that is going to each season focus on one issue right <laughs> sounds familiar so yeah it sounds really familiar and yeah it uh i tweeted something about it and I found it curious. I mean, I think what also to me struck me about it was that uh, the executive who bought my show and mm-hmm. who was the one who was, you know, like, oh, I love this idea of looking at one topic over the course of a season. And I, you know, I think was the person who could, you know, held my show's life in his hands, could choose mm-hmm. to renew my show or not. He, when my show was up for renewal, left HBO, went to Apple, 
Oh man. And is the exec over this show. (laughs) And so I think to me, that's what, that's what feels a little fishy about it all is just that like, Oh, wait a minute. The guy who bought my show also bought this show and I think was the person who held a deciding vote on the life of my show. Right. And then, you know, just opted not to vote and uh, left, uh, left the network. Uh, and then basically is like, you know what? You know what a good idea for a show is? A show that spends <laughs> a season looking at one issue. Uh, yeah. I like that. And yeah. I should I should get a guy to host that show. Oh, you know what? I'll get John and we got to come up with a title for it. Right. Mm. That was where it was so egregious. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. No, it, it uh, all... it's just disappointing and but also and but you had that one uh, great clip from your show where uh <laughs> said go ahead and quote it exactly because i don't want to just paraphrase it sure Uh, there was a clip that we had had in the show and it was based off of uh this guy that i had interviewed had uh he had talked about policing and he'd made a really uh just a really great statement about how uh you have to you know he basically made like a really good statement about policing and just like what the expectations for police officers should be. And he was a, he was a young black man. And so I cut back to studio where I was and I said, wow, you know, what he said was really deep, but if there's one thing I've learned from being on television, if you want people to take something that a black person says seriously, you really need to have a white guy say basically the same thing right after. And I mean, it was so perfect. So, Maybe at least you had, had that at your disposal, you know? Yeah, no, the one thing that I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for that HBO probably isn't is that I was able to hold on to the masters of right. my show. <laughs> and I have a very rudimentary understanding of iMovie. Right. <laughs> so. Oh, that's great, man. Um, before we get into Blazing Saddles, I did want to talk about one more part of your career because I know, and this is something I've never talked to you about. Like we've, we've hung out like a number of times over the years. And for some reason, I never talked to you about King of the Hill. Oh, yes. And your years writing for King of the Hill. And I would just love to know a little bit about what that was like, because it's just such a beloved show. And I know a lot of our listeners love it. Sure. It was a really, it was an interesting experience because I think one, it was my first job in television as like a writer it was was my, it really yeah i mean i'd had like jobs where i was a pa and stuff but uh-huh. this was like my first like official okay you're you know you're a tv writer and i for me i grew up in texas and i grew yeah. up not too far from uh where mike judge went to college uh-huh. and it's something that mike and i have talked about where i when I was a kid, we would ride our bikes over to his college campus. Uh-huh. And uh, my friends and I at the time were, you know, really big into like GI Joe and army stuff. And so we would always like get our like little camouflage outfits and we'd tromp through, there was like a, a little Creek that went into like a sewer 
and we'd kind of uh-huh. tromp through there at the edge of campus or we'd run around the campus on the weekends with water guns and yeah, yeah. do like our you know little army shit and so I, it it was funny to think about the idea that he was he may have been in school around the same time right we were, were <laughs> these idiot kids running around uh-huh. and just how like bizarre that that is to think about like how our you know just that we sort of walked the same the same grounds uh at different times and had different experiences with it and so in that way for me working there there was a strange sense of like this show feels incredibly familiar to me yeah. because a lot of the references and things were things that i saw i saw versions of that there was the first episode when I started. What season was that? I came in in season seven. And so my first day on the job, they were doing an animatic screening. Um, And for those who don't know what an animatic screening is, uh, look it up. I'm not going to teach you. Right. No. Uh, (laughs) It's basically before the, before an episode is fully animated, they do the audio track to rough animation. And so you see the shots, but you don't see full animation. Um, And so you get to kind of like see it half alive and you rewrite some things, you talk about different shots. And so my first day, they were having an animatic for uh, this episode called New Cowboy on the Block. And I remember the showrunners were on vacation when I started and Greg Daniels was in the office. And so he was overseeing this animatic screening. Oh, wow. And uh, the writer for the episode was a writer named Dean Young. And Greg, who I didn't know very well, uh, you know, I just started. And Greg was like, why don't you come into this animatic? And I was like, oh, okay. And I watched the animatic and the episode was this episode where uh, a Dallas Cowboy, a guy who played one year for the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> yeah. special teams had moved onto the block <laughs> and as a result was seen as a god. Sure, of course. And so I had that same thing happen when I was a kid. No way. There was a special teams player... <laughs> who played one season with the Cowboys. <laughs> he played one season with the Bears and one season with the Cowboys. Yeah. And he moved in, he moved on to our street. That's so funny. And he was like a god to the neighborhood. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And it was like, he didn't, like, I don't know that he ever, you know, I, I don't know that he ever saw any serious playing time. And then he, you know, two years of football and he was out. And, uh, but he was considered like, this God on the street and people were like, Oh my God, there's a cowboy, a Dallas cowboy lives on our street. And you know, people puff their chests out in this way where it was like, uh-huh. <laughs> we like, this wasn't like a wealthy street by any means, but all of a sudden everyone thought like our property values just went up. And, <laughs> and so there was this real sense of like, Oh yeah, this, like this show I can relate a lot to what this show is is talking about 
despite the fact that like these characters don't look like me or my family, these, a lot of these stories, I, I feel a connection to. And so yeah. I, I think there was something for me that was really, I, I really connected with, um, and, and I was a big fan of Mike. And so it was like sure. really great. Uh, Mike at the time lived in Austin. And so he wasn't a part of the day to day. Yeah. Um, but every summer we would take a writer's trip to Austin. Oh, wow. And that was really cool. Cause it was an opportunity to get to spend a little time with Mike. And for a lot of the writers, they weren't from Texas. Yeah. There were a handful of us. There was me. Uh, there was a writer, Christy Stratton. Um, and another, I think Jim Dotrieve was from Texas as well, or definitely went to school in Texas. Um, yeah. Jim was from Texas. Uh, so yeah, there was just a handful when I was there that were from Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and then there was a guy, uh, JB was also from Texas. And so there was just a handful of like writers who grew up or spent considerable time in Texas. And so for the other writers, it became this opportunity where we'd all go down there and obviously, you know, we'd eat well and drink well, but totally. also go on little field trips. And so people, it was, it was kind of great. And I, I don't know if other shows do this, but you know, the like different writers would find different things to do. Like some writers would go to like a church singles group. Uh, really? And yeah. And they would just do it. And it was all with the idea that like they wanted to just do research and look for stories yeah. and about Texas. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it, it really was like a weirdly journalistic approach to it where uh-huh. I remember there was an episode, there was an episode that I, I had pitched that got written after I left. And it was, oh no, it was, it was one of those things where as much as I, I, there was a lot that I got from the show. And then there was also some terrible shit that I dealt with at the show, uh, which was constantly being reminded that uh, I was the only black writer and right. that I was only there because the network had created a diversity initiative oh, where wow. my salary wasn't part of the show's budget. It was something Are that you serious? it was something that Fox would pay for to encourage shows to hire people wow. of color. Holy cow. And I was constantly reminded of that by my boss. Um, and so, uh, and I think he was reminding me of it in a way he thought it was a good thing. Uh, right. and to me, it's like, no, you're telling me I'm not like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, but in, when I left, uh, the year I left, one of the things I had become fascinated with was roller derby. And uh-huh. there was a big <laughs> roller derby scene that had popped up in Texas and in Austin specifically. And I'd had this idea that Luann uh, join a roller derby team <laughs> and that potentially Peggy might want to join too. Cause sure. it fits right into Peggy's <laughs> wheelhouse of like yeah. everything she would want to do that either she joins or she decides she wants to be a coach and becomes uh-huh. <laughs> an incredibly aggressive roller derby coach. Um, but I, but I had become fascinated with it and I was like, Oh, you know, there's roller derby and we should go check it out. And so, uh, that year, I I remember they didn't want me to do that episode. I pitched it and I think they initially, 
uh, weren't into it and then got into it and another, and then they gave it to another writer to, to write. And I was kind of like, Oh, that's, I, I was really excited about that. And oh, what a bummer. And so, uh, but I'm glad I, I'm still glad that they made the episode. Um, and glad that the story found the, found a life somewhere. Right. Uh, was it, it a good episode or were you kind of like, eh? I don't remember. I, I think when I left the show, admittedly, I, I left the show and I, as much as I loved the show, it, it I left because I wanted to do other things, but I also left because yeah. I didn't feel particularly comfortable there. And, right. uh, and so I think when I left, there was a little bit of me that it became tough to watch the show afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, and so I didn't really watch. I, I yeah, recently... I NPR uh, pop culture happy hour had done an episode recently where they talked about King of the Hill and they were just kind of, they had a, a, a guest on uh, a journalist named Soraya McDonald and they were all talking about King of the Hill and they were talking about how they felt the characters would have voted. And it was an interesting conversation to hear uh, some fans talk about it. And I was kind of, I just started thinking about it. And so I was like, you know what? I, I, this is the story I would pitch. And so, you know, with the knowledge of the characters I had, I pitched, I just basically went on Twitter and I was like, this is what I think would happen. Uh -huh. And I just kind of went and I laid out my pitch for a King of the Hill episode. Um, obviously Mike has final say, but I was like, this is what I think it would look like. And it's, you know, Hank is somewhere between a, you know, he's a conservative, he's somewhere between a conservative and a libertarian. Right. And, uh, and so he may feel like he has to vote his party. And I think the way I kind of laid it out is like, he's a little torn. He's, he's not crazy about it, but he's, he's a little torn. Uh, I, I have to read the tweets again, but basic, uh, Basically, he gets the episode starts with him catching coronavirus from Bill, <laughs> who was asymptomatic, but just uh, got Hank sick. And so Hank is in the garage where he has to now stay for, uh -huh. you know, until he's <laughs> yeah. until he's safe again. And while in the garage, he sees Bobby acting really rude. And Bobby is saying like, oh, he's acting like Trump and that he sees Trump as the comedian in chief. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like, oh, yeah, people like <laughs> Trump does all these terrible things and he says they're a joke. And like, you know, he says he's kidding. And so Bobby's sort of emulating this behavior. And upon seeing that, uh, it gets to a point where Bobby does something that that offends Connie and uh -huh. is offensive to Connie and uh Hank sees that and he's like you know what screw this I'm not gonna vote like I like I, I don't want to vote for this party and I don't like the idea of a politician being a comedian I still don't forgive Nixon for going on laughing uh -huh. uh, like um and but he's like I can't I can't do it and then one night in the garage he has a fever dream where he's visited by uh, Ann Richards. Uh -huh. <laughs> and Ann Richards reminds him that like, 
I was governor of Texas and I was a Democrat and like, it's not always about party there. You know, there are people across party lines who do things that are the, in the best interest of the people. Uh And so that's what ultimately convinces Hank and he decides to vote for Biden, but he won't tell anyone except Bobby who he swears to secrecy. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, Bobby start. he has to at some point teach Bobby that like what Trump is doing isn't comedy and you shouldn't expect your politicians to be comedians. You should expect them to be the people who enact what you as, as the public want. Bobby sees that, you know, he apologized to Connie. Uh, Peggy and Luann have a storyline where while all this is going on, because it's in the middle of a pandemic, they head to the Megalomart where uh, they're going to, they're trying to load up on toilet paper like everybody right. else. <laughs> but when they get there, they see that there's uh, a strike happening because all the people at the Megalomart are like, hey, we are, we deserve a raise. Like we're, you know, front facing in the, you know, are at risk and people are getting sick who work here and very much echoing what's going on, uh, what was going on with like Whole Foods workers and Amazon workers where it's like, oh yeah, all these people are getting sick and they don't have healthcare. And so Peggy and Luann see this and then wind up getting involved in the strike and (laughs) Peggy, you know, Peggy sees herself as the Norma Ray for this group. Right. Whether they see it is another story, <laughs> but Peggy has kind of like gone, you know, full, full on board. And so even in, at the moment when Hank has decided he's not going to vote, like Peggy gets very upset and is like, you have to vote. Like this is, you know, uh, like, cause she sees herself now as this labor organizer. And, right. uh, <laughs> and so that's, so that was kind of like the episode. And then, I, and then I kind of talked about how the other guys would have voted. And I, I, I said, well, you know, Dale's off the grid. So, or as off the grid as a guy who's owns a house uh, that is in his wife is in his wife's name and paid for by his wife. Right. Um, he's, <laughs> but he wouldn't vote. Uh, and then uh, Boomhauer, uh, I, I, I think I wrote out Boomhauer's vote in his voice where he was just kind of like, uh, you know, talking about dang old uh, bad knees, man, talking about uh, football, man, talking about, you know, dang old legalize it, man. Um, And so he's voting for anybody who will legalize marijuana. Uh, And then I said that Bill would get arrested uh, as part of the January 6th insurrection only because he had been catfished there for love <laughs> by Dale and that Dale had catfished him with some woman who had been involved in QAnon and you know Bill is not really paying attention to what QAnon is he's just kind right. of like this lady loves me and like she's you know and she told me to meet her in Washington DC and so Wow, um, dude, I want to see that episode. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> a, a fair number of people uh, wanted to uh, also, they echoed that. And what wound up being funny, I, I tweeted all that. And then it was actually a very sweet thing. I, I, I also tweeted an image that the animators had drawn 
there was an LA Times article about the show uh, when I was working there. And they had had the animators draw the writing staff. Oh, cool. And so we were all drawn in that style Very in the cool. writer's room. And so I kind of tweeted out my, you know, this was the episode in response to that pop culture happy hour uh, episode. And I tweeted it all out. And then at the end of it had put this illustration uh, in part because I think as people were reading it, I don't know that people realized that I had worked for this show. Right. And they were just like, oh, wow, like you, you seem to know a lot about this show. And it was like, and so I, I, I tweeted that and it was something that was very sweet was one of the writers uh, had seen it and he had responded his, uh, his name is Kit Boss and he had responded that uh, both a sense of like, of, you know, fond memories, but also in looking at the, the image, a sense of embarrassment at the fact that it was this sea of white guys and right. a couple of white women and me mm -hmm. and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and in his tweet, uh, said, uh, he, he had, it was a, it was a very funny thing where I I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, if this image, if there were a song to go with this image and he linked to the song white room, uh. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you're not wrong. And you know what? That song will follow me uh, to a few more places. So. Oh man. That's great. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. 
It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You were my first sort of entertainment celebrity friend. Did you know that, you and John? I didn't know that. Well, wait, was it me and John or just me? Well, I met you guys both on the same day. I know you don't remember this stuff because people only remember like meeting people that are more important than they are. <laughs> was it the, it was the, uh, the quiz. Was it the no, quiz? No, before that, oh. that, that is what we roped you into. It was, uh, John got in touch with us, Josh and I about, Jesus, probably like 11 years ago and said, my friend Wyatt Sinek, uh, told me about stuff you should know and said, I would really like it and to give it a listen. And so I'm reaching, I love, I love it. And I'm reaching out to you guys. I'm going to see if y'all want to have lunch next time you come to New York. And Josh and I were just like, oh my God, did you see that? <laughs> like Wyatt Sinek is listening to us and John Hodgson's listening to us. And uh, we met for lunch at Shopson's. Oh, yes. You, me and Josh and John. And that was our first like meeting with someone in the entertainment. Like we were just very removed and still kind of are, to be honest, but <laughs> Uh, very removed from all of that and in our little room recording our show and just, it was a big deal, man. It meant a lot to us that y'all listened and y'all reached out and uh, took us to lunch. And uh, so sort of 12, 11 years later, I just wanted to say thanks. And oh. it, it was a big deal to us. And it, it sort of felt like, you know, we had arrived in a certain way for two guys who sort of accidentally fell into this career uh, as non-professional, you know, broadcasters and comedian types. And uh, it was a big deal. And and so much fruit has been born from the relationship with John, too, of him introducing me to people. You know how John is. And yeah. He's just such a connector. And uh, but you were you were the conduit, man. So oh. and, and and I'm not surprised you don't remember, but it was a big I, deal. No, to me. now that you say it, I remember <laughs> us going to shops and I, I like that was you. <laughs> it was, good. I think that's the I've only been to shops since maybe uh, or that iteration of shops. And I think I'd only been to it. That might have been my first time there. Oh, and really? Maybe I went one other time. Uh -huh. And then I've since been to the new iteration of it. But Right. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, I, I mean, one, I enjoyed listening to the podcast so much. And I really became this uh, weird little evangelist for it where I was like, oh, my God, you should listen to this episode 
the listen to them talk about zombies like this is so fascinating <laughs> and, well that was huge man it, it was a big deal and so it's it, to meet you guys i think i was enamored with what you all were doing and how you know you talked about my show but i feel like when i listened to your show what was great was that you were taking all of these ideas that uh, people kind of like know more as concept and digging into them in ways that were thoughtful and approachable to a listener where, yeah, it became a really enjoyable thing to consume, whether you're in a car driving and listening or you're on the train and you got your headphones on or you're just sitting in your apartment and you want to be entertained. And it, I, I feel like it, it was that the, the interplay between both of you was always very fun and engaging. And it felt like, it felt like you were sitting and eavesdropping in on a wonderful conversation that you would walk away from it and be able to go someplace else and be like, Hey, do you want to know something? I just right. like, and you kind of walk away looking like a genius. And it's just like, yeah, I know all this information. It's like, where'd you get it? I just overheard these two chaps having a lovely conversation about it. Uh, well, thanks, man. Um, and you were, as a result, you were one of the first people I wanted to get on Movie Crush. And I tried to a few years ago and I, I bugged you a little bit. And I think it was just not the right time. And looking back, it might've been when you were probably making problem areas. So it was probably terrible timing, but I'm yeah. glad to finally get you on. Uh, and when you picked Blazing Saddles, I was really excited because this was a, a very big movie for me, uh, especially in college with me and my friends. We, I mean, I don't keep count of how many times I've seen specific movies, but this one is up there uh, along with Spinal Tap as far as comedies go. Uh, um, seeing them and, you know, the Christopher Guest, all of his stuff really, uh, seeing movies probably dozens of times. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing it, believe it or not, this was the first movie I saw in the theater when I was three. My parents took me to a drive-in of Blazing Saddles. And it's one of my first memories in life is, and I only remember a couple of things. I remember Cleavon Little, when he first rode into town with that sweet, badass suede outfit. The Gucci. Yeah, the Gucci outfit and that cool horse. And I remember Mongo punching out the horse. Right. And those are the only two things I remember from being like three and a half years old or whatever when this movie came out. But um, what I mean, let's get into it, man. What what is this movie to you? It's a lot. It's 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 an interesting movie because I feel like it's one of those movies that I like in rewatching it. I, I've watched it a bunch myself and. I rewatched it in anticipation for our conversation and there's a part of it where you watch it and it's just like the storyline is almost secondary or tertiary yeah to all of these just ridiculous scenes but also it plays it plays a role in it and I think one thing I've always appreciated about the film is when you watch it, there is, there's a real, like, there's a real difficulty level to doing a movie like that. 
That, totally. And I think, I think if you were to look at probably reviews of that time, people would say like, oh, the plot's thin. But yeah. what's interesting is like, you're setting things up that you're calling back later throughout the movie. You're weaving things in, you're making choices where you have like, you know, the executioner that's outside of Hedley Lamar's <laughs> office where it's yeah. like, you've got a medieval style like, executioner <laughs> middle ages. Yeah. And like, what a weird, uh-huh. like what a weird thought process of like, this has nothing to do with the overall story, but we want to do this joke. And so we have mm-hmm. to justify like this joke somehow where you have a plot thing happening and then you just hear a noise. Right. Like, and then it's just like the noise is really just to go and tell this one executioner joke, which isn't a cheap joke. You've still got to get a set and do all these things. Yeah, sure. And it's like, you've got that joke and then it's almost a throwaway, but it like shows up a little bit later. But the idea that like, when I think about crafting a movie like that, like the idea that something that seems like a throwaway, you then justify later when you have to, like it it comes back towards the end of the movie again, when there's another execution happening. Mm-hmm. And I think the part of me that knows how these things get made, it's like, oh, however many days this shoot was, Mm-hmm. That's a set. And you <laughs> yeah. had to you uh-huh. had to get that set for a certain number of days. Right. And you gotta justify using that set. And like, and just how like I, I don't know, there's just something about it that feels like, oh, the there's an execution that's that's going on there that's like so weirdly thoughtful where uh-huh. everything is connected and also seems so unconnected at the same time. And I just remember watching it and thinking like this movie seems so like wonderful in its zaniness and, but also so intelligent in how it's, in how it seems chaotic. And Mm -hmm. I always thought like, Oh, one day I would love to make my own version of a blazing saddles. Like that's always been the thing of like, Oh, when I think of a satire, I think of that movie. And when I think of, Cleavon Little and just the role he's playing as well, where it's like he's taking, he's basically Bugs Bunny, but doing something that, and and I'd be curious if like this was the thought process when they were crafting it, but you know, so many of those old cartoon characters, whether it's Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. their origins are in minstrelsy. And right. the, you know, the white gloves are part of that kind of like minstrel, uh, that minstrel wardrobe. And that's, oh, interesting. and that's where they, that's where a lot of it comes from. The roots of it are taking a lot of those minstrel shows and those character, those characterizations and just putting them into animals. And so that's and that's oftentimes you would see when the characters wind up like in blackface from time to time. Right. It's a little bit of a nod to that, but the gloves were that's a holdover from that. And I didn't know that. Yeah. And so there's something that's interesting about then like 
oh, now you have Cleavon Little uh-huh. basically taking, and at one point even going as far as doing like a Bugs Bunny bit. Yeah. Where, and taking all of that and now actually taking something that has its origins in minstrelsy where uh-huh. you had white people in blackface and now you've sort of taken some of those movements and the and the, the characterizations and you put them into animals and then you've built something out of that and then here is a black person taking all of that and using that to point at and make fun of racism in yeah. in this world and so there was something about it that I was that I found like very subversive whether intentionally or unintentionally about his performance and what was going on there and so i think to me it was both like oh here's this really funny movie but also one where when i think about things like representation it is one where it is you know in a 1970s way trying to be representative and talk about racism and even talk about Uh sexism uh, but, you know, doing it in a way that I think today probably feels antiquated, but, you know, 45, over 45 years ago, I think to look at it through that lens, it's like, holy fuck, like what, like, yeah. like you're really doing something and doing it in a way where you're using comedy to do it. Uh, I was, yeah, it's, it's, it's always meant a lot to me in that regard. Yeah, I mean, what struck me today was how quickly it subverts that uh, the racist thing right out of the gate. Like the very first scene is on the railroad when, um, oh, what's the guy's name? I love him. He was in the the Fletch movie. Uh, was it Slim Pickens? No, he's great too. Uh, Burton Gilliam. Oh yes. Uh, when he's he's trying to get them to sing, sing, sing the good old slave song. Right, yeah. And it subverts it right away. Cleavon Little exerts his power and starts singing, you know, yeah. some get their kicks from champagne. Yeah. And it's just immediately it sets the tone for this movie of what's going to happen, which is Cleavon Little is is probably the smartest guy in the movie. Uh, at least he and Jim probably are, right. are equals. And these guys are all idiots. Yeah. And we're gonna and we're gonna show that right out of the gate, and then those guys start singing the Camp Town Lady, right, and dancing around like a bunch of morons, and the, and that just set that just sets the tone right away, and you know what kind of and you know so much of this was probably lost on me when I was certainly when I was three, but when I was <laughs> nineteen and in college, uh, it's a movie that the more you watch it over the years, the not only do you find new jokes, somehow you still find new jokes. <laughs> But you really get the subversion of the whole thing more and more as it ages, I think. Yeah. No, I think it's it's an interesting one to watch in that way. And I think to what you're talking about, I think of another, there's another thing I think about, especially with Cleavon Little's character, where I think about the story of Br'er Rabbit, which was a mm-hmm. story that I was always fascinated with as a kid. And it was you know, that idea of it's the trickster and Cleavon Little was the trickster and the trickster, you know, Br'er Rabbit comes from African folklore and the stories of like Anansi the spider who was the trickster and 
originally Br'er Rabbit stories were stories that enslaved people told each other. Right. And Br'er Rabbit was the embodiment of the enslaved person who got one over right. on either the overseer Br'er Fox uh -huh. or the plantation master Br'er Bear. Yeah. And so there's something that I think even in that, when I think about like Cleavon Little's character, it falls in that same line of like tricksters where I think of a Nancy the Spider or Br'er Rabbit and totally I never really thought about that and that but that moment in particular where it's like you want me to do this thing so I'll pretend to be dumb so I get you to do the thing right and it was just like oh yeah there's something that's so brilliant about oh yeah I'll let you show yourself how stupid you are and I, I just thought it was really such a smart movie and how it did those things. And even I think about, you know, you mentioned that like Bart and Jim are kind of the two smartest people in the room. And then I feel like Madeline Kahn's character kind of gets there <laughs> that like she starts oh, off as like, she, she starts off as a smart person, but one who uh -huh. is willing to kind of be a pawn in this. Yeah. In Headley's game. In Headley's game. And then at some point, decides, oh, no, I don't want to be a part of any of this. And I, I think, you know, she kind of becomes this third character. Like the movie ends with Bart and Jim kind of riding off in the distance. And I think if it were to be rewritten today, uh -huh. I feel like there would probably be a little more to Madeline Kahn's journey where, you know, she uh, where she also joins them at the end. Well, she probably wants to. I mean, that was one of the funniest parts of the whole, uh, her whole sequence is, you know, she sent in to, to romance him and leave him. And none of that ever makes sense. It's such <laughs> a thin sort of premise anyway. Yeah. And, and she's just kind of cooled and, uh, cold and cool to him. But, you know, then she sleeps with him overnight and she's just like, she's fallen for him. She's like, yeah, she doesn't want him to leave. She's trying to keep him there. And she completely turns against Hedley Lamar. Yeah. There's like an interesting sort of like the radical, the radicalization of certain people in this movie where it's like, uh -huh. you think about her because by the end, yeah, she's like uh, singing to the Nazis to get yeah. them to stop fighting. And <laughs> so it's like, they, she's kind of been radicalized. Mongo's been radicalized because oh, totally, yeah. he has, he's never been Mongo. treated as nice. <laughs> and so there is this weird like wave of like people seeing, oh, wait a minute, there's maybe a different way to do this. And even by the end, they've radicalized the whole town Yeah, where it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, you like you see that uh, we can work together and mm -hmm. to do this, like it's it's you know, it's a very sort of uh, building blocks kind of thing. But it is that thing of like, how are we going to build a fake town in overnight? And it's like, right. Well, I got all the Chinese railroad workers and yeah. enslaved uh black people to come and they're, uh -huh. and they're going to help. And the townspeople were like, Oh, and then it's like, they're going to help and they're going to save you. But to do this, you're also going to have to give up 
being racist and right and give them some land and give them some land and there's something that's interesting in this like in that conversation that's like it's almost so rudimentary in how simple it is Uh but it is that thing of like yeah that's that's the core of what it is is like we're never gonna stop this unless we all work together right but in working together it also means that like everyone's going to have to get like their fair share when it's all over. And right. it's, it's almost like, it's almost this weird, beautiful message in an, in a movie that also has a scene that is just three minutes of people farting nonstop. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the scene, when you were talking about the trickster thing, uh, I think that is so evident in the, and, and, you know, the, the setup of the movie is very, it's all very funny. And I mean, joke for joke per minute, it may be one of the funniest movies ever made. And the first 30 minutes is certainly funny, but the, uh, I feel like it really heats up when Bart finally comes to town and the town welcomes him with a big ceremony. <laughs> and um, he, the Br'er Rabbit thing is most evident in the scene where he takes himself hostage. Yes. You know, they all pull the guns on him and he immediately is like, well, here's what I have to do. I have to go into this sort of uh, typical, you know, typical black man mode that they will recognize. Right. And uh, they can identify with that because like that's the only thing they're going to recognize and and identify with. Right. And uh, and then, you know, he, he plays it so perfectly. Cleavon Little is so great in this. And when he finally gets behind closed doors in the office, he's like, you are, baby, you are so talented and they are so dumb. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they say that a few times. Uh, Gene Hackman calls them morons. Yeah, he calls them dumb. I think Harvey Corman is the other sort of smart one. Or Gene, because he knows. Oh yeah, what did I say? Gene Hackman. Yeah, Gene Hackman. That would have been interesting casting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, John Wayne was originally they they sent that to John Wayne. That doesn't seem like uh, it would be the same movie. <laughs> It doesn't. And especially considering now, you know, what we know about John Wayne's politics and thoughts on race at the time, even. And it was, uh, he apparently liked the script a lot, but he said he thought it was too blue. And he, there's, he just, there's no way he got the, no, there's no way he got it. No, (laughs) it's not. (laughs) That seems so bizarre. I doubt if he understood it. I could not imagine him in that role. Uh, no. No, because because Gene Wilder and uh, and Cleavon Little were such a great team, and I know, and I'm sure you know that Richard Pryor, one of the writers, was gonna play uh, Jim as well, but or they are gonna play Bart. Yeah, and they they didn't do it. I mean, I've heard a few different excuses on why they didn't do that, but I mean, I love Cleavon Little, but I totally could have seen Richard, uh, a young Richard Pryor, in this movie. I could have, but it's interesting because I there's a part of me that. It would have been interesting to see Pryor and Wilder, just given the then run yeah, of what movies. Was to come. They they would kind of create a comedy duo uh, as. But I feel like there's also something about Cleavon Little that I feel like I he wasn't somebody that I thought of as a comedic actor in that way, and he's he has this kind of leading man quality that like I could see him playing a super spy yeah or you know see him playing like a lawyer or someone someone with real gravitas 
And it's interesting to then see him bring that into this role that is comic, but also I think he he leans on his serious acting as well in a way that I don't know if it makes it any it makes it funnier than if Pryor would have done it, but I think it just makes it more interesting to me in a way. And yeah. in the same way that I think of like Jeffrey Wright to me is one of the funniest actors when given comedic things, but is such a great just actor in general. But there are moments where there was something I saw him do and it was just like a short video that I think was for like the New York times or something like that, where he's, Uh he's in an airplane and he's narrating it and he's just sitting on an airplane and his ability as an actor is just like, oh, he's such a great, serious actor. And then there are these moments for him to be funny. And I think it's almost because it's, because you forget that he's funny, it hits you (laughs) like this gut punch in a way that's like, oh yeah, this is, I expect Richard Pryor to be funny. So I think- I would anticipate any scene he walks into yeah that he's going to be funny and I'm almost I'm almost more shocked when he's serious and when I think about like a movie like Jojo Dancer right like you're almost you're more impressed at him being serious in those yeah. moments and in the same way someone who is a really great serious and stage actor to see them be funny yeah it's a it hits you in this different way and, and not every serious actor can pull off comedy in the same way that not every comedian can pull off serious stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it also hit me today watching the the townspeople and just how much it sort of echoes what we've seen during the Trump years of these people that are determined to act against their own self interest <laughs> just to hang on to racism. Yeah. And just to be able to say the N-word to somebody. Right. And it's that that grievance politics that we've seen so much of lately. And it's like, but you're acting against your self-interest politically. And like, like, do you understand what you're doing? And they don't care as long as that, as long as they can say bad things about people. Yeah. Like that's what matters more. Yeah. And that it's, it, it is, it's a very, it is a very good kind of like, uh, analogous thing to think about with the Trump era. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. Cause as you say that, yeah, there's a lot of it where it does feel like I, I think about the one, uh, the one woman who, uh, brings, brings them some dinner that comes to Bart and Jim yeah. and makes them a pie. Yeah. Like earlier in the movie had yelled at Bart and, uh, called him a nigger. And then later, shows like shows up at the jail and brings him a pie and is like i'm sorry about that from before (laughs) and also here's this pie and thank you but then also don't tell anybody about this (laughs) and it's that it's that weird it's the weird identity politics that i feel like exists we often think about identity politics extending to like anyone who has you know 
who doesn't fit what we consider the sort of the conservative American pie norm or yeah. whatever. But I feel like there's the identity politics that exists of the people who, like you said, vote against their own interests or feel they have to live up to some to some version of what a like white person from the south or a rural right. area is supposed to be. And I think about uh there's uh there's a filmmaker, her name's Elvira Lind, and she uh made this she made this show for Vice. And it was an interesting show. Uh it was a show about these two trans Brooklynites who decide to take a cross country trip together. Mm -hmm. And one of, uh, one of the people in the, uh, in the story, and I'm trying to remember their names. I feel like one's name, one, one person was named Twiz. I think it was like Twiz and Tuck. Mm -hmm. I think is the name of it. If if somebody wanted to go look it up, I think it's called Twiz and Tuck. I think it's Twiz is from a very rural area and decides to go meet up with uh, the guy that took them to prom when oh, wow. they were still uh, presenting as, as female. Uh -huh. And so they go to this incredibly rural place and they meet this guy and, you know, he looks like he could be one of the, like a cousin of the Duck Dynasty guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, beard's not as long, but he's got the camo baseball cap that's, yeah. that's curled and he's wearing sunglasses. And they meet this guy and his family. And the guy's a little thrown now seeing you know, uh, a male version of mm -hmm. his prom date and but right. they talk and stuff. But then you discover in this conversation and them talking, the, uh, the guy has kids and one of his kids is gender nonconforming. Wow. And they're supportive. And it's, and it's wow. like, and it's such a strange thing where it's kind of like, and yet, and I'm sure there are people in this community who are supportive of this kid. And yet this community may have voted yeah. overwhelmingly against that kid's interests. Yeah. Despite the fact that they've seen that kid in school plays and, right, you right. know, at church or wherever, and they embrace mm -hmm. the kid. And it's that weird thing of like the identity politics of, well, I still have to come off as this like conservative that can't like actually say, well, hold on a minute. Maybe it doesn't make sense yeah. for us to be closed minded. And these and maybe this touches our doorstep a little closer than we realize. And yeah. Those things. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to it goes back to my King of the Hill uh, episode, my fan fiction episode of Hank. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Hank uh, feeling like he has to vote party over uh, right. everything else. And, but it is that it's, but I, it, it was funny when I think about that scene in blazing saddles, it's very much that to, to your point, 
there are so many of those people who have who voted for Trump and said like, oh, you know, build a wall and uh, you know, we don't want gay people to have rights and and yet probably have people in their lives who are immigrants who right. they may or may not know their documentation. Uh-huh. Like some may be documented, some may be undocumented. Right. They're in their lives and they're like, well, that person's different. Right. Like, yeah. Well, that's what you hear a lot. Yeah. Is, is, but like, you know, they're, they're an, uh, an undocumented Mexican, but like, man, they're really good on the job with us and, you know, really good coworker. Yeah. It's like, well, you don't have to caveat any of that. No. And <laughs> you, you can don't. say he's a really good coworker. He's a really good coworker. And also if he's such a good coworker, shouldn't he have the same rights as the rest of his coworkers? Yeah. And shouldn't he have access to the same rights and privileges? And if he's a good, if he's such a good worker, couldn't you then agree that probably the the vast majority of people in the same situation as him are good people and good workers (laughs) and deserving of those same rights rather than, He's the outlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I love, I mean, you mentioned the scene earlier with the old lady in the pie. Um, I love how he handles her and how he handles everybody in the town with just such a plum. Like right after the scene where they basically, or where he gets welcome to town and they all pull their guns on him, he hoodwinks him, goes in the office, and it shows him the next day on the job. He's just sort of whistling and he's putting up his wanted signs. <laughs> And, you know, when the lady comes, she comes back, she leaves the pie and then comes back and says, of course, you'll have the good judgment to not tell anyone we talked. And he's like, oh, yes, of course. man!" Like, he's just such an affable guy to everybody. And and Jim wakes up in that jail cell, a cell and immediately realizes that, like, this is a friend for him. Right. Like they're pals right out of the gate. Uh, The first thing Bart does before he goes out on on the job is get stoned. Which, right. like, I remember that scene a hundred times of them smoking the joint, but it never really occurred to me that, like, that's before he goes out on his first day sort of walking the town. Right. He's like, I'm, I'm just going to smoke this joint and then just kind of walk around in a good mood. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. Even that, I mean, there's something that's, there's, there's, there's an interesting comment that's being made about the criminal justice system and yeah. in general, like the carceral system that we have where... Yeah, in to Bart, Jim isn't uh, isn't irredeemable, right? And neither is Mongo. And it's you know they both can have, they both can find redemption if they're willing to do the work. And like Mongo, and, just pawn in game of life. Yeah, Mongo, and exactly, <laughs> and that's the thing. And Mongo, that's I feel like that line breaks me every time. Uh, yeah. But it is, it's, it's, uh, but there's something that's interesting about, yeah, uh, perhaps if more cops smoked a joint before they right. walked a beat, uh, they might, they might approach things from more of a de-escalation uh, situation so. uh, or just like, oh, right, maybe, maybe my job isn't to even get involved in half of these things. Right. Uh, and that like, oh, right. Yeah, we don't have to imprison people. Like, yeah, Jim is like 
Jim's crime is that Jim was drunk. And it's like, right. Oh yeah. And the drunk tank. Yeah. That's maybe not a crime. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe let me get to t- get to know this guy and understand. And even in that conversation, he's like, you don't eat and you're just going to drink. Right. Like, that's a quick way to die. And just that idea that like, Oh, the concern, like that's like, yeah, like their friendship is forged in a place of concern and totally. care. And that's what also makes it so like beautiful. And you see like a real, like even by the end where it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, whatever we do, why don't we go together and have yeah. an adventure? Oh man, I love the ending. I mean, that's so great that he took him along. Yeah. Where are you going? Nowhere special. Huh? I always wanted to go there. Yeah. And then, you know, they ride the horses in and get in that Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> no, I feel um, like that's what's also so great about that movie is like they take everything and then subvert it. And it's just like, okay, they're riding off in the sunset, oh, but then they get in the Cadillac and then they zoom out and you see where they are in context of like, it's a back lot right. and yeah. like all those things. <laughs> and I think something that I really appreciate about the film something I really appreciate about the film that um, I feel like you don't see as much in comedy today, comedy movies is Mel Brooks really uses the camera as a comedian as well. And I feel like so often when you watch a comedy film, it's all shot in sort of shot, reverse shot, close ups Mm -hmm. and it's people feeding lines off camera where it's, you know, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people saw what Adam McKay did with Anchorman and they focused purely on the sort of improvised alt takes on things Mm -hmm. and carried that, but didn't take into account. Oh no. Adam McKay also tried to build shots where you saw you had wide shots where there were jokes and I think Mel Brooks does that. And it's, and, and so I think, yeah, one thing that I feel like a lot of comedies, I don't, I don't see as much. They, they tend to just focus on those kind of like, okay, the camera's on, the camera's on Wyatt and he sets up Chuck for a joke. And now Chuck has a witty comeback but also the director then says, okay, now say this. And Chuck says the next thing and then the next thing. And you'll say 15 different versions of a joke. Right. And then they'll take it into the edit and it's like, okay, whatever the funniest one is. Yeah. And a lot of comedy filmmaking today, I think relies on that without often doing the other thing that I feel like Blazing Saddles does really well, which is choreographing Mm-hmm. a comedic moment right yeah yeah and and obviously i mean they had i think four other right mel brooks and richard Pryor, and i think three other writers right and i remember hearing stories from mel brooks saying how writing this movie was the most fun he had in his career in that writer's room he said all they did was laugh and he said that richard was just invaluable because he was their sort of barometer on what they could say and what they couldn't say as far as, you know, sort of racially upsetting things. Right. And Richard Pryor was like, you got to say that stuff, man. Right. He's like, cause those people would have said that stuff. And if you don't, it's just, it's phony. Right. And uh, so he sort of gave them permission to go where they went. 
I think, but apparently Pryor didn't write much of that stuff. He wrote a bunch of the Mongo right. scenes yeah. and uh, some, like, I think when people hear that Richard Pryor wrote this, they would think like, oh, well, he wrote all the black jokes. Right. Uh, because that was just the way it had to be. And apparently that just wasn't the case. Yeah. I remember reading that he really loved the character of Mongo. And yeah. <laughs> I think Mongo just a pawn in the game of life is like, that's, that's a prior line. That's his verbatim. And yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like I'd watched a documentary where they talked about him doing that. And, you know, I think Pryor was very coked up at the time. And so Probably. I think, because uh, I, 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 I know that one story was that Warner Brothers said they couldn't insure him because of his coke habit. Yeah, I heard that too. And there are a couple movie uh, studios that didn't want to insure him because of cocaine. But uh but I, I could see him, I feel like in some documentary or a book that I read that talked about his experience there, it seemed like he was acting out a lot of things uh-huh. and uh, may have been kind of like playing different parts. Right, right. Improvising, I think, probably like improvising with Mel Brooks, where you have two performers who are also writers. Yeah. Uh, and... So I could imagine, yeah, that just that interplay was probably had to be a lot of fun for them. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it, I feel like that version of writing can be it's really fun, especially if you've got someone who can record all of it and be the person at right. the keyboard to be like, OK, yes. All right. I'll put that in. And then, yeah. The magic is happening. Yeah, and then we'll find a way to make all this make sense. Uh, and then, I mean, there's just so many good dumb jokes. I mean, it's a movie that's uh, it's relentless in its dedication to the joke. Whether and so many great, like I'm a big fan of dumb jokes and wordplay, and uh, whether it's uh, um, Higgins from Magnum PI saying, you know, we want to extend to you a laurel and hearty handshake, right? And like that's just such good old school. Yeah. Sort of Borscht Belt comedy. Yeah. That, you know, like that's just like Mel Brooks signature stuff. And so much of the governor stuff, you know, Mel Brooks is the governor. So much of that stuff was just great, dumb jokes one yeah. after the other. Yeah. No, I, uh, uh, and you may know this, but I, I was, I was looking up something about the movie and uh, his name, Lepato Maine. Do you know this, where that mm. name comes from? No. Lepatomaine is apparently the name of a French performer. Uh, and I don't remember what what era this French performer uh, was around. Uh, but their whole thing was that they were a performer that would just get on stage and fart. <laughs> and so they were just a, 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 a performative <laughs> farter. <laughs> which feels very much like yeah on brand <laughs> yeah <laughs> well he has that other good line too that i never noticed when um i think it's when they have the little uh bolo paddles is that what they're called with the the rubber band and the ball and oh, they're talking yeah. about kind of swindling the native americans out of their land yeah and Mel Brooks says something about, you know, we got to get busy, gentlemen. We got to protect our phony baloney jobs. <laughs> and I never really noticed that line until today. And it, that's such a great subversive line just about government and like, you know, these sort of white dudes in charge. We got to right. protect our phony baloney jobs. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm trying to, I mean, it's so easy just to, let's say your favorite lines over and over. Uh, just the relationship between Jim and Bart was just so great right out of the gate. Uh, you know, since you were my guest and I'm your host, what are your pleasures? What do you like to do? Oh, I don't know. Play chess? Screw? Well, let, let's play chess. Yeah. <laughs> and then what's a dazzling urbanite like you doing in a rustic setting like this? There's just so many great lines. It really is. And then everything Madeline Kahn does, like how she, I mean, just one of my favorite comedians of all time on screen and how she came up with that. I mean, it's a ridiculous German accent. And then that sort of speech impediment that she had. Yes. Just to throw that on top of it is such a fun, weird choice, I think. Yeah. And that everyone went with it where then later there's a letter that's, you know, right. In, the telegram. in that same like <laughs> accent with the sort of Barbara Walters uh -huh. uh, kind of, uh, yeah, it's like a cross between Barbara Walters uh, and, and German. And uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it was great. It's funny watching her. I, I found myself, uh, she, I've seen, I've definitely seen like a lot of movies that she's done, but like, I think about her and I, I, I think about Kate McKinnon in a similar way Yeah, as far as their ability to kind of like take a character uh -huh. and both make it ridiculous, but also you can tell that they're fully enjoying uh -huh. the ridiculousness of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're having a good time. Yeah. And that just translates in this way. That's like, they're both in it and not in it at the same time, uh -huh. they're like winking at it while they're doing it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, she's, she's great. Uh, and then there was another one of the subversive lines that uh, I'd never really noticed before was after candy gram for Mongo, after he outsmarts Mongo with the candy gram and he comes back and it's the next day and, and Mongo's tied up and Gene Wilder is, telling him how great that was. And he goes, yeah, the hardest part was inventing the candy gram. Right. He said, he said, but I know I'm not going to get credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> I never noticed that line before. Yeah. It was so great. It really was. <laughs> no, that was a very funny. Yeah. I, it's, there are just so many, yeah. Things that kind of, it's, it's the perfect movie that like demands a second and third watch because yeah, it, there's so many things that, happen here that like you catch and then you miss the thing that happens right, right underneath yeah did you know the hbo max had a it's not on there now but they ran it last summer and had a had a lady on at the beginning um talking about putting it in, into the proper perspective no uh, as a like a disclaimer almost putting it in cultural perspective of today and it was just like a two minute thing that this lady did. Apparently they did the same thing with gone with the wind. I think it might've been the same lady. And I went to look for it today. And of course they, it wasn't even on HBO max anymore, but I think that's a really interesting thing to do. Uh, Cause you know, this is one of those movies where half the people will say like, Oh, you couldn't make that movie today. Right. And the conversation around that is interesting to me because what I learned online from talking to movie crushers about this is, to some people, you can't make that movie today means they're almost sad because you can't say awful things anymore. Right. 
And when I say you, you couldn't make that movie today, I don't mean it that way at all. I mean, this kind of comedy and satire is so hard to do successfully. And the conversation around that stuff today has so little nuance that that's why I think it would be hard to make today. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be difficult, but I still think you could do it. It's just, I think you'd have to pay more things off. Like there's definitely towards the end, like, like I think I, I feel like in the movie, the, the movie really tried to tell a black and white story, Mm -hmm. but then also had Native Americans, gay people, women. Oh, Asian, Irish, Jews, Germans. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of everybody. And I think what's tough is that the, the sort of cruelty that's enacted on some of those groups, there's never a, there's never a, moment to really sit with it like the Mm -hmm. first thing in the movie you know a chinese railroad a chinese railroad worker collapses and is just kind of met with a slur right and the very first thing that happens yeah and there's never like there's it just kind of is there and goes away and right i think like that's the thing that like Oh yeah, you can't get away with that anymore. Like you've got right. to, you've got to have some comment or something about that. Or even at the end of the film, it's very much you know these dancers are being played as very flamboyantly gay, right? And it feels like okay, you're making fun of a a caricature of someone that. Yeah was funny at that time because for the people who actually lived in that reality, many mm-hmm. of them couldn't feel comfortable or safe being vocal about who mm-hmm. they were. And so I feel like it's those things where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Those, those are the areas that really are like, yeah, you can't do those things. Right. They pay off the Bart stuff because he, he wins in the end and he wins everyone over and he is the smartest guy. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, although that, that end sequence does have one of the funnier parts to me when, uh, one of the big cowboy guys goes to beat up on one of the, the gay dancers. Right. And they kind of go behind the wall and then they, and then two seconds later they come on the other side of the wall and the guy's got his arm around him and he goes, well, you know, I'm parked over by the commissary. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like in, on some level that was maybe, their, I think so. Their attempt to I, comment yeah. on I think so on that, but it's yeah. I feel like there's you know if you were going to make that movie again, I think you want a room where if you're still going to do those scenes, mm-hmm. you want that representation in the room right. to to sort of figure out and craft the best way to make those comments so that it's not so that no one can walk away thinking it's okay to just make an anti-Asian slur or right. And then leave it there. Yeah. And that that's somehow funny or that it's okay to uh, say something homophobic and right. And that you can just kind of like that there's no consequence for that. And so in those ways, I, I feel like 
uh, yeah, that's the part of it where it's like, oh, you can't do that anymore. But it is interesting the way that these things get explored and shared. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like the Disney cartoons when they uh, mm-hmm. when they were on DVD, Leonard Maltin would do a disclaimer at the oh, really? at the beginning of the DVDs where uh-huh. I think it was a very similar thing where it's like some of what you're about to see is old, you know, old stereotypes that, uh, you know, aren't don't fly today. And it's weird because I feel like with kids things. I have a different feeling about it with kids things. Mm-hmm. And I I saw this and I I tweeted about it, uh, but I'm not I don't have enough of a Twitter following that like things really uh, go viral in that way. But I tweeted because I'd watched when the pandemic started, I'd watched old episodes of Scooby-Doo. And there are some very racist things in Scooby-Doo that are just throwaway jokes. Right. And in rewatching it, I found myself thinking, at the very least with Scooby-Doo or with those old cartoons, and I don't think they put a disclaimer on Scooby-Doo, but it did feel like you know, it wouldn't be that hard for that company to just animate a new a new bridge to get right. out to like to either cut that out of it and mm-hmm. replace it with new like you could very easily cut audio and it's easy enough to like make animation kind of match that style yeah, totally. That That's you, the beauty of animation. You can change it 50 yeah, years later. <laughs> that I feel like you could update something like Scooby-Doo where mm-hmm. it's purely children's entertainment, but it's also right. that thing that a parent is like, oh, I watched this and I want to watch it with my kid. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, you could maybe do that rather than make that moment for a kid for a kid and a parent if they're watching it together hopefully they're watching it together the parent didn't just park the kid in front of it and it's like oh and now scooby and shaggy are in chinatown dressed in like clothes (laughs) like Like geisha ladies or something yeah they're like turn of century clothes and they're doing like buck teeth and accents and it's like Oh my God. Yeah. You don't need that. And you could very easily just animate a new 20 seconds and right. Right. Take some audio. And like, it's not like, it's not like those storylines were that fucking strong to begin with. So right. You probably just trim it out. And the sanctity of, uh, of (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Like, I feel like, I feel like it would be easy to do that. Like, I feel like Tom and Jerry did, I didn't. I remember they did something where they just revoiced the oh, really the black woman who uh, lived in the house or who yeah, worked yeah. in the house, and I felt like that didn't work. I feel like what you wanted is like no, just reanimate a new scene where yeah, it's like the same, like you know, it's whatever. It's someone saying like Tom. I'm leaving you in charge and whatever. Right. Because it's also the, like everything about this character is like, even the visual of this character, you're evoking something. 
And so by changing the voice, it's not like yeah. not enough. It's right. you're still taking <laughs> that kind of mammy character and you're just saying, oh, now she can sound like she's, uh, you know, uh, a lawyer from Atlanta. Right. <laughs> who still dresses like a mammy. <laughs> All right, Wyatt. Listen, man, I know you got to run. I think we did Blazing Saddles justice. I'd like to think we did. And I appreciate you coming on and being so generous uh, with your time, man. It's good to see you. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's good to see you, too. Your beard has grown much since I last saw you. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. I'll uh, Next time I get to New York, I'll I'll hit you up. Maybe we can go have a drink or something. I would love that. And the next time I get to Atlanta, maybe we can go to Fox Brothers. Oh, totally, man. Anytime. I'm ready. Yeah. Or... uh, What's the other, there's, there's another place I went to, a uh, gun show. Yeah. Gun show's good. Uh, I'm thinking it closed down cause the pandemic. Oh, no. That was actually the last restaurant I went to Oh, for my, my birthday, uh, March last year. So, Oh, well, happy belated birthday. That thanks man. Yeah. Two. 50 this year. Oh, wow. Well, happy belated birthday Two belated birthdays, 49 and 50. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Take care. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. This one was supersized. Why, it's a great guy. He's always got a lot to say, and he's always really interesting to have a conversation with. I uh, I usually have these conversations with Wyatt sitting in a bar, um, sometimes just the two of us, which is really nice. But this time it was over Zoom, unfortunately. I uh, can't wait to get to New York and maybe uh, see him again, because like I said in the show, it's been a while since I've seen uh, seen one of my old pals. So big thanks to Wyatt. I uh, hope he did Blazing Saddles justice. I hope you guys got a lot out of his uh, conversation about his career and especially with problem areas. Like I said, you can still watch it on HBO Max. It's a really, really good show. And uh, if you missed it the first time around, I encourage you to go out and check it out now. Problem areas on HBO Max. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.